It's great to be with you this morning, and I want to take an opportunity, take this opportunity to thank Pastor Miller and his staff for this op- this uh, chance to be with you. I treasure it. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and praying for it and looking forward to what the Lord had for me in it. And I must say, the Lord has taught me a lot of things as I have prepared and thought about this topic of wisdom. Uh, wisdom. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning from the book of Proverbs, the skill of living life so that your life is beautiful and there is something that lasts when you are done. The ability to make decisions and uh, choose the right, the right choices that will result in the, in the greatest end in life as we move through life. And uh, this morning what I'd like to do after looking at Proverbs in Sunday school is go to the book of Job, as we've already read from this morning. Uh, Let me just say, to introduce this book, I think you're probably familiar with it, but I was given a book this last summer. I served as interim uh, pastor in a church up in Coon Rapids, and the book is by a man named T.J. Addington. It's called When Life Comes Undone. The man who gave it to me was a man named Dick Pepman. I mention this to you today because Dick Pepman's funeral is tomorrow. Dick was struggling with stomach cancer this summer when I was there in the church. I was interim, and he came up to me right away and said, Hey, I want to take you fishing. I got a nice fishing boat. He said, I've been trying to sell it. I have this cancer issue, but I haven't been able to sell it, and I like to use it for the Lord, and I'd like to take you fishing with me. It never worked out that we were able to go fishing. Every time that we had tried to set a time to go, something happened. Uh, he wasn't feeling well. You know, I, I, I have, um, I, I might just add, in my own situation in my own life has been a bit of a turmoil the last year or two. That's part of the reason my wife's not here today. We have two parents who are now in nursing homes. My father has had a feeding tube for over three years and done amazingly well, but is struggling in these days. And uh, it just seems like it's been one thing after the other in our own lives Uh, let alone, of course, in the lives of others around us. But when I think of this book that Dick gave me, and I think of him tomorrow and his testimony, I don't know how many of these books he had passed out, When Life Comes Undone. I, I think of the book of Job, because every one of us is going to come to a place in our lives where, at least from the perspective of this world, it's going to look like our, our life has come undone. Job says in Job chapter 3, verse 25, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. And you know, wisdom applies, and we need wisdom, this wisdom from God that we're talking about today, especially in those kinds of situations. They're going to come to every one of us. The Lord doesn't come before. Uh, they're, they're go- we're we're going to face these kind of things. Many of you are facing them right now, like I am in various ways. Uh, but we're going to come to the place in our lives where we're going to say with Job in Job 3.25, what I feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. And that's where we need wisdom. That's where we need, I think, some of what we can learn from the book of Job today. So let's go there and see what Job has for us today. I'm going to walk you through the book of Job. That's my plan this morning. 
I told my wife, wow, this would have been a lot easier series if I would have just picked one book and stuck with it instead of uh, trying to cover all the wisdom literature. But my, has it been a blessing for me to try and summarize these and try and get them together in such a way that I can find what what especially the wisdom is in these books, as I'm going to try and do today. So we're going to walk through the book of Job, and I realize I don't have a lot of time to do that, and we're going to focus especially on a chapter in the book of Job, a wisdom poem about wisdom. It's one of the reasons it's in the wisdom literature in Job chapter 28. We know how the book of Job began. We read it this morning. In Job chapter 20, in chapter 1, we're introduced to this man, Job, and there are two things that strike us there in that introduction. One is, this man is a man of character. He's blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. And the other thing we see is that he has unbelievable wealth and prosperity. And uh, blessing, it seems like, from God. And the impression we get is these two things go together. Job serves God, he follows God, and he's a man who is blessed and uh, has God's blessing in his life. The next scene, which we also read in chapter 1, takes us to heaven. And Satan, with the other angels, uh, good and bad apparently, are called to appear before God. And God brings Job to his attention. Have you considered my servant Job? Whenever I read that, I say, oh God, I hope you don't think, remember me in this kind of a situation. (laughs) Have you considered my servant Job? But on the other hand, it's because Job was so righteous that God does this actually. And I don't know that I'll ever be the kind of man that Job is here, that I would be used of God in this way. But God calls Job to Satan's attention, and Satan's answer is, well, he serves you because you bless him. Uh, Take the blessing away and see what he does. So God says, okay, you can do anything you want to do with Job, but you can't touch his body. And he does that in chapter 1. And we read the third uh, scene also at the end of chapter 1. We read Job's response. Job says... He fell on the ground, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But it's not over yet. If you go to the short chapter, chapter 2, Satan again appears before God, and uh, the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then God adds something to what he said in chapter 1. He says, he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. God says that there was no reason why I did this except you challenged me. You challenged my servant Job. And I wanted to show you in this cosmic struggle that's going on the reason that Job serves you and that I'm worth serving even if a man or woman loses everything they have. Well, Satan's answer is skin for skin. uh, Touch his own life and see what he does. Touch him and see what he does. And God says, okay, you can touch his body, but you you can't take his life from him. And he does that. Um, He has sores on his body from his head to his feet. And Job responds responds again, verse 8, Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which is where I spend a lot of my time, has a lengthy account here of what his wife says. And it doesn't make her look any better either in that version. But anyhow, 
He replied, Job replies, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He has three friends that come then to visit him in chapter 1, and they are going to let him sit. They're going to let Job talk first. So uh, they sit there silently for seven days, and then in chapter 3, Job responds. The main reason Job wants to die here in chapter 3 is not because he is suffering from physical illness. He calls out asking God, uh, why can't I die? He wishes he had never been born. It's not because of his physical illness, but it's from the grief of his bereavement. He is, he is I think, reacting to the disorder he is, he is encountering in his world. And here's the problem of the book of Job. Is Job a terrible sinner? Or is Job's theology wrong? Because you see, everybody in the book of Job, every character except God himself, believes in something we would call a retribution theology. And that's this. It's the dogmatic employment of the concept of divine retribution so that there is an automatic and immediate connection between deed and state of being. I serve God, I get blessed. And I'll tell you, if you don't read the book of Proverbs very carefully, you can get that impression from the book of Proverbs. Get in the wisdom. Fill yourself with wisdom. And Proverbs promises so much. But you better read all of Proverbs. You better read that chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Life is in God's hands. And if, if he chooses, uh, he can do what he wants to do with your life. But this is what the book of Job, I think, is, is really all about. The purpose of Job is to show that the proper relationship between God and man, people, humans, is based solely on the sovereign grace of God and man's response of faith and submissive trust to God. And that's the main problem, I think, in the book of Job. That's what it's all about. You'll see when we get to the end, the problem of Job's suffering is not the issue, is not what comes up. But it's used as a lever in the book of Job to get us to this bigger problem. What is the basis of our relationship with God? Thus, Job's suffering as an innocent party is not the main focus, but was introduced to isolate and intensify the question of the proper, relation, of the proper basis of a person's relationship with God. Well, that takes us then to uh, the biggest section of the book of Job, and that is a series of cycles of speeches after Job speaks says he wishes he could die, his friends begin to speak. And they begin to respond to him. They're each going to speak at least uh, three times, except the third one will just speak two times. They give up. They run out of words. They try to fit Job's sufferings into some kind of scheme of karma or retribution that makes sense to them. And everyone's message is basically the same. Job, you sinned. Will you confess your sin and get it right with God and get his blessing again? Do you sense what they're saying? Confess your sin so you can have God's blessing. Man, that's the way I operate many times. You know, just say you sin so you can have God's blessing. Job is, has too much integrity to do that in the book of Job. We read at the beginning what God said about Job, what, what the book says about Job, he doesn't do that, and there's this amazing struggle going on between Job and his friends in these chapters of the book of Job. So, 
in the midst of that struggle, and this is where I want to take us to now, is the praise of wisdom in Job chapter 28. You thought we were going to be forever this morning, didn't you? Look at there, we're already at chapter 28 of the book of Job. They're, all, they're only 133 chapters. No, they're not that many chapters, okay? But uh, we're on our way here. Let's talk about the praise of wisdom here in the book of Job. I've tried to put a, a chart up there to give you some idea of where these things fit in. You can see the speakers, if you look along the left side of the chart. You see, we're, we're beginning in chapter 4 on the top left side. And cycle 1 is down the left side. First Eliphaz speaks, then Job. He responds to him. Job talks longer than Eliphaz does. Every response of Job's is longer than his friends. He wins the verbal battle, so to speak, although nobody's got life figured out. Bildad speaks. Zophar speaks. Job responds to them. Cycle 2, it starts all over again. Chapter 15, they speak longer than they did before, and Job speaks longer than they do. And these things, if you've ever read the book of Job... It's kind of like reading Leviticus, isn't it, when you get into some of these sections? I mean, it just seems like it goes on and on and on. And what are they saying here? Well, you're getting the point. They're not saying much. Uh, chapter 28, notice, on the right side uh, is between two of Job's speeches, the dark uh, bottom and the bottom of the right-hand side there. It's within these chapters, and it has kind of a curious place between Job's two speeches in 26 and 27, and then 29 to 31. And uh, if we look in the larger structure of the book of Job, I hope this makes sense if you can read those, but chapters 1 and 2 is uh, the beginning narrative, Job's disasters. And then there's this dialogue, chapter 3 through 27, all these speeches, and there is the wisdom poem right after that. And there's a lot of debate about who wrote it, but it's right within Job's speeches, and I tend to think he actually wrote it, uh, because uh, rather than whoever put the book together or wrote the book reporting all these things, I tend to think he wrote it, and because of what it says about him, actually, or what it says related to him in that wisdom poem, or that relates to him. But then after that, we've got the second part of the book, we've got some more dialogue, and then we've got some more narrative. So it's really right in the core of the book. It's in the center of the book, and it is very important, I think, that we understand this wisdom poem in the middle of the book. So let's go there this morning. Let's go to Job chapter 28, and I would like to uh, walk you through it. If you have the notes, uh, and don't worry if you don't, I think you can get them later. It's totally my fault here this morning, but uh, in fact, there may even be a bigger set of notes <laughs> Bless Pastor Miller's heart. I think he printed off uh, uh, the file I sent him was uh, not the right one. So any, anyhow, uh, uh, but, but if, if you do, let me just read it for you. You can pick these up later. This chapter is a wisdom poem structured around the key refrains in verses 12 and verse 20. If you've got your Bible open, that's the main thing. Look at verse 12. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? It comes up again in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And we get the conclusion of the whole thing when we get to verse 28. And this, this if, you, if I'm able to communicate to you what's going on in the book of Job, you can get a sense of this. This book is kind of like a dramatic pause here because we've had all these speeches. They've gone on and on and on. 
And the, these uh, friends of Job are just verbose. They're dogmatic. They're, they're telling him what's wrong. And he keeps answering them back. He's not convinced with longer speeches than they have had. And they've not gotten anywhere. We've, we've seen the whole futility of all these chapters that can be so long to read. The human mind has failed to arrive at wisdom. The human mind cannot understand what is going on in Job's life. And it lays the foundation also here in chapter 28 for what's going to come later in the book, which is the speeches of God, where we will finally find wisdom and we will find out what is the answer to what's going on. I want to look at this chapter, so let's start by doing that. Uh, let's start with uh, the first uh, 12 verses before I put that next slide up. And you're going to see that those first 12 verses teach us that human genius and research cannot discover wisdom. Verse 1, there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Now notice these things. These are the things that are, you get wealth from, silver and gold. They're the things you get power from, iron and, and copper. You make weapons from them. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. It's a picture of miners here. Verse 4, far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft. In places forgotten by the foot of man, far from men he dangles and sways. And the picture is here of people that are being dropped down into a pit, dropped down into a, a, a mine shaft or something on ropes, swinging around there, uh, taking the things out of the earth. Verse 5, the earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. As sharp as the falcon's eye is, the point is, man goes beyond the birds. Man is doing more than the falcon can do. He's seeing things he cannot see. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. And no lion, the proudest of all the animals, prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. Man does all this. It's amazing. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man with all of his scientific discoveries. Man with, with all of his technology, with all of his knowledge. And, and man be, being characterized by this throughout the ages exploring every aspect of the earth, learning everything he can about the earth. Yet man cannot attain unto God's wisdom. These men cannot answer Job's questions. Here are some of the things that I draw from those verses. First of all, human genius is not being denounced here or criticized at all. And I don't think we ought to denounce or criticize science that is done well, I think these things are all excellent and all good. It's something common to us as humans. We, God's put it in our hearts, I think. We're going to talk about that tonight in Ecclesiastes. We want to know what's going on in this world. But it's connected here, notice, with the quest for wealth and power. Sapphires, uh, wealthy minerals, uh, gold and silver, as well as copper and iron. 
Mankind does all this. He goes far beyond what the beast can do. He is God's uh, image placed here on this earth to rule this earth for God. It's obvious. But he cannot discover wisdom. Mankind is not able to discover wisdom. Human genius and research do not get there. What is wisdom? We talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school, but I think I need to just take a moment and review that for those of us who were there, and many were not there this morning. Here's how we define wisdom. Wisdom is a skill of living life well. People who have wisdom have mastered something. Uh, I, I, let me give you a longer definition there. It's the art of living in a way that demonstrates a true understanding of who you are and what the world is about and who it was made by and for what purpose it exists. That is wisdom. If you can begin to figure those things out, which are foundational to your life, you can be extremely clever and still lack wisdom. Let me give you an example. I think of Bertrand Russell. I had the privilege this spring, my wife and I, to be in Cambridge, England for my sabbatical time. And Bertrand Russell taught there at Cambridge. He was by any man's definition a brilliant man. He's one of the Cambridge apostles as an undergraduate, a lecturer at the university on and off for decades. He was a mentor of the famous Wittgenstein, the philosopher. Russell authored nearly 70 books about mathematics and philosophy and religion and politics, everything from Principia Mathematica to the history of Western philosophy to why I am not a Christian. By all accounts, a brilliant man, enormously influential on several generations of students within Cambridge University and beyond. And yet in many ways, he was at the same time a man who was profoundly out of touch with reality. It showed itself in little ways. When his third wife, Patricia Spence, went away and left him at home alone, she had to leave behind written instructions on how to make a cup of tea. Move the kettle onto the hot plate, wait for it to boil, pour water from the kettle into the teapot, and he still couldn't manage to do it. It showed itself in other weightier ways as well. The story of, his, story of his multiple marriages and numerous adulterous affairs were the story of a train wreck of cruelties and infidelities, endured and inflicted. Even when you make due allowance for the bias of his biographer who clearly loathed him and put to one side the question of apportioning blame, it was clearly a catastrophic mess of bad decisions and terrible consequences. His biographer quotes a poem that Bertrand Russell himself wrote about his own life. Here's what he wrote. Though the, through the long years I sought peace, I found ecstasy, I found anguish, I found madness, I found loneliness. I found the solitary pain that gnaws the heart. But peace I did not find. Peace I did not find. I think what we're reading about in the book of Job chapter 28 here in these first 12 verses is illustrated in the life of Bertrand Russell. Human genius and research is not able to discover wisdom. Look at the next verses of this chapter now. Chapter 28 verses 13 through 20. And we see here that human resources can't buy wisdom either. Verse 13, man does not comprehend its worth. 
It can't be found in the land of the living. can't be found on earth. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can it, its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. You can't buy it. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? These verses, I think we see in verse 13, we can't, as humans, even understand the value of wisdom. It isn't found on this earth. And we don't have the resources. There's nothing we can come up with on this earth that would be valuable enough to buy wisdom, to purchase wisdom. So look at the last part of this chapter. I think we're going to get an answer here. Verse 21, it's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and He alone knows where it dwells. Ah, we're starting to get an answer now, verse 23. For He views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind, this is at creation, when God created this world and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it. He tested it. And these verbs imply God's intellectual activity revealed in creation. And God said to man, God who knows where wisdom is to be found said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Human beings, Glenny, every one of us, this is wisdom. Fear God. And to shun evil is understanding. To shun evil is understanding. So God alone is the source of this wisdom that none of Job's counselors have, and Job doesn't fully comprehend yet. God is the one who made everything, sees everything, knows everything. His wisdom is revealed in creation. As far as he reveals it to humans, we can find it in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork, but it's only part of himself. He is manifest in creation, but he's still mysterious. There are still things about God that we don't know, and we don't know them from creation. But... The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Job 28, 28 is a key verse concerning wisdom. It's the motto of the wisdom literature. It's in every one of the books. It's also in the Psalms. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, we're talking about a relationship with God. It's a term for Old Testament religion. I think these are some of the conclusions we can make concerning the fear of the Lord. I've got them up there on the screen for you. It's not a matter of us striving to be our own gods and understand everything. That's not what life is all about. It's not a matter of us being able to explain everything. I can't explain everything. I don't know the answers to all kinds of things. I have had a younger brother, two years younger than me. Many of you knew him. He went to uh, did his doctoral work with Pastor Miller at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was a pastor up in St. Michael, Minnesota. He passed away a year ago, October 5th. 
kidney cancer. Served the Lord much more faithfully than I did in high school. Godly man, and yet the Lord chose to take him at that point in his life. Why? I don't know. Why am I here today in front of you? You're probably wondering that too. But anyhow, uh, you know, why am I here today? Why did the Lord put me here? Why are you here today? We can't explain everything, can we? It's recognizing who God is and who we are under Him as His creation. Recognizing His greatness and power and the limits of our own power, the limits of what we can do. Job's counselors. Let's go back to them for just a moment. Now think about them with me. They, they make generalizations that they give to Job that are not unlike the wisdom that is found in the book of Proverbs and the wisdom Psalms. And a lot of the things they say to Job are true as generalizations. In the long run, in general, it is the righteous who prosper and the wicked who are destroyed. In the long run, we know that's going to be true. But Job's friends think that knowing a few of these proverbs and generalizations handed down as wisdom means they know everything. They think that the wise person is a person who has an answer for everything and an explanation to every situation. You know any wise people like that? And Job's sufferings put their wisdom to the test. One by one they offer their explanations and they are all inadequate. So Job says to them sarcastically in chapter 12, Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. And in chapter 13, verse 5, If only you would be altogether silent, for, for that would be wisdom. And in chapter 13, verse 12, he sums up his response to their so-called wisdom. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. The experience of Job and his debate with his friends makes it clear what wisdom is not. For us as human beings, wisdom is not a matter of knowing all the answers and having all the explanations. It's the mysterious events of suffering and death when they affect us personally that expose that fact most powerfully to me and I think to you. Suffering and death put all false wisdom to the test and expose its hollowness. And that is the problem, I think, with Job's counselors. And that is the problem perhaps many times with many of the rest of us in one of the things that we are supposed to learn, I think, from the book of Job. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. If you take this phrase and trace it through the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. It says it teaches a person wisdom. Notice 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, just like we have in Job 28 the last part of that verse 28, to avoid evil. It's wisdom. And in Genesis 20, 11, Abraham talks about, I think it's the household of, of Abimelech. He says, there was no fear of the Lord there. And there was no moral behavior in that household. So he called Sarah his sister, if you remember there in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 11. The fear of the Lord is the sine qua non of wisdom. It is that without which there is no wisdom. It is more than knowledge. It involves relationships and behavior. And I want you to notice one of the things that I think we ought to grasp from the book of Job. Job 28, 28, he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn from evil is understanding. I think we're supposed to get the point. This is what makes me wonder if Job somehow 
could have been the author of this wisdom poem stuck here in the middle of the book, that Job has it. Because that's exactly what God says about Job. If you go back to Job chapter 1, let me read it to you again. It says, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Verse 1. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And I think we're supposed to get the point from the book of Job that, you know, Job had had some wisdom. Job knew what he was doing when he had the integrity not to confess some sin he didn't commit so he could have God's blessing, even though he didn't understand it all. At the end of the book, his righteousness, his wisdom is said to be superior to his counselors. So how does this book end? I want to take you to the conclusion just real quickly. Job gives a soliloquy, uh, talks to himself in chapters 29 to 31, talks about his standing before God, his righteousness and so on, and the fact that, that, that he has done right things, and he defends himself to his counselors. Another man comes along, you probably are familiar with these guys, Elihu, and Elihu kind of prepares the way for the rest of the book. Elihu suggests there might be more answers we could look at, and it opens the way for the Yahweh speeches, the speeches of God. And in chapters 39 and 40 and 41, God speaks. How does God speak in this section of the book of Job? Well, he asks questions. They seem irrelevant to the main part of the book. They seem to have nothing to do with suffering. They have everything to do with creation. Job, where were you when I created the earth? Job, do you understand how this, look, how this operates in the earth? There, if you're a biology professor, you think you might have a chance, but Job flunks the biology test. He doesn't know the answer to any of these things. And Job responds then, let me close with this today, in Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. You're sovereign. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel with knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. God, I was presumptuous when I charged you with wrong. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, God, I understand you better. I wanted to call you into court. I wanted to say you were wrong. I wanted to bring a charge against you that the things I was suffering were not right. But God, now I have seen you with my eyes. I know you better than I did before. Therefore, I despise myself and I understand now. Is that what he says at the end of verse 6? You got your Bible open there? Now I understand. (laughs) If you're still with me, that's not what he says at the end of verse 6. He says, I repent. I don't understand yet. I don't get it, God. But I repent in dust and ashes. Lord, I repent. Now, let me just say a couple things about this. It was not wrong for Job to question God. That's what he does throughout the book. God, why? Why am I suffering? God, will you come and and stand before me? Can I come before you so I can bring this charge against you? Why did you do this to me? That's what he repents of. He repents of his arrogance in calling God unjust. That's what he's repenting for. Because he called God unjust. What he was suffering, he didn't think was fair. 
He repents of demanding an answer as if such were owed him. God didn't owe him a thing and he doesn't owe me a thing. My. I'm indebted to him. Every breath I breathe is a gift from God. And he repents of not knowing God better. Not knowing God better. I despise myself. I've heard of you, but now I have seen you. And God, I repent that I didn't know you better. And I did these foolish things. Job's a wise man. And he demonstrates it, I think, at the end of the book. Job evidences the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom in his ability to do these things. Now, just this is it. Look at this, this slide for a minute. He keeps his bearings and clings to God in his integrity. That's what he does. Even when he doesn't understand what is going on, he never, in the book of Job, he never gives up his integrity. But he clings to God, even when he doesn't know what's going on. And I believe that's what wisdom is all about. I believe that's what the fear of the Lord is all about. When life comes undone, Wisdom is not having all the answers, folks. Wisdom is keeping our bearings and clinging to God tighter than we ever have before with whatever integrity He has given us, even when we don't understand what's going on. Heavenly Father, thank You. You're such a wise and good and almighty God. God, we ask that we might grow in the fear of You the reverential respect for you that is due your name. And God, that we might shun evil and depend upon you and trust in you in the midst of the sufferings and death and realities that we face in this life. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command.